Welcome to HSBC Global Viewpoint, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. This is a podcast from HSBC Global Research, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. However, you're listening, analystifications, disclosures, and disclaimers must be viewed on the link attached to your media player. Welcome to Under the Banyan Tree, where we put Asian markets and economics in context. I'm Fred Newman, Head of Asian Economics Research here at HSBC. And I'm Harold Vendelin, the Head of Asian Equity Strategy, also at HSBC. There's only one month left for 2023, so it's really time to start thinking about what's in store for next year. And today, we want to focus on one particular issue that's very dominant in 2024, and those are the elections across the region. That's right, and there's no shortage of them. No less than five Asian economies will be heading to the polls in 2024 with big implications for markets and macro policy across the region. We've got a lot of ground to cover in a short time, so let's get the conversation started right here under the Banyan Tree. Let's start with a quick timeline of Asian elections in 2024. First up is Bangladesh with a general election on January 7th. Soon after that, Taiwan heads to the polls for a leadership vote on January 13th. Indonesians will be voting for their next leader a month later on February the 14th. Then it's over to Korea for assembly elections on the 10th of April. Last but certainly not least, the world's largest democracy, India, will hold a general election in April or May. So, Fred, a lot is going on for leadership across the region in 2024. Which election are you going to be focusing on in particular? Well, big elections all around, but I think the two ones that really <laughs> the focus is, is on is, is India. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Indonesia. And in India, I would say um, it's, first of all, a massive logistical feat uh, yeah. to get 1.4 billion people to vote. Well, not everybody votes, but, but, you know, hundreds of millions of people to vote. It's now done electronically, by the way, no longer paper ballot. So um, India is, in some sense, more advanced than some advanced economies when it comes to election technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but there certainly the question is, uh, will some of the economic reforms continue that we've seen? Will maybe after elections, do we see another p- push for reforms? Because very often what happens is in these economies is that the reforms, uh, the form momentum slows down in the run-up to the election, and then mm-hmm. afterwards you get a new impetus. And that's going to be one of the key issues for India, I believe. But uh, Harold, you you keen watcher of Indonesia, what what are you watching there? Well, the story there is that the existing president, uh, President Joko Widodo, will not continue. He's had two terms. So there are now three new contenders, and really two that are in the lead. And the polls show that it's it's really close. The economic policies don't, don't differ too much. It's really a, a sort of differences in personality that people probably going to vote for in Indonesia. And I think uh, they have the biggest one-day election. There's a massive logistic operation as well. But the presidential election is probably going to be in two stages. And then I think um, somewhere when we get a feeling of who that's going to be, who's going to win, or we have the outcome of the election, then it's about, yeah, what sort of decision-maker is he going to be? What sort of people is he going to surround himself with? And, of course, we should 
mentioned that uh, the, the the first round is on February 14th, Valentine's, yeah, Valentine's Day, Day in yeah, Indonesia. Yeah. But then, of course, that's not the end of it because we could have a runoff. Uh, and in Indonesia, the elections are the unless you get more fifty percent of the vote for the presidential election, there's gonna there could be a runoff between the top that, two contenders, and that's probably much later in the year. Yeah, so we're in for a long, year. long yeah. period of uh, campaigning and electioneering uh, in, in in Indonesia. Um, Korea is another big one, um, but it's a presidential system. We don't have presidential elections, but we have national assembly elections. There's uh, national you watching assembly that elections. on a from an equity perspective. I'm looking for that as well, uh, but. In Korea, it's really big tech companies that dominate the equity market there. So what is important to big tech companies is what happens with global growth and what happens in the inventory cycle in, in tech products and these sort of things. The presidential elections are important because very often it's all about uh, the position of these larger tech groups within Korea uh, and their role within Korea that, that's being discussed as well. But in general, how, how do you look at, uh, at those elections? Well, the elections probably matter a bit more from the macro side than from sort of from the equity market perspective, uh, because it's a presidential system, as you say, and the president really determines often the, 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 the economic policies that come out. But um, what matters here now, next year, is really the opposition controls parliament at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the elections kind of mean that parliament will be controlled by the same party as the president, then that could have implications for fiscal policy going Mm. forward. And that matters for the bond market. It matters for the exchange rate, for example. And so that's why, in the macro sense, um, investors still watching uh, the Korean uh, assembly elections. Yeah, that's how it then also impacts the equity markets and kind of indirectly. Indirectly it does, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not not sort of the key focus as a presidential election uh, would be. The other one is, of course, Taiwan. They have elections as well. Uh, you're looking at those? That's coming up in January. That's going to be, in fact, one of the first elections in, in the cycle of the coming year. And that's uh, uh, we have a presidential election there. It's a presidential system, more or less, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and there has been already a bit of uh, chatter because the opposition might field a joint candidate or not. And so the, the focus among investors has been whether that comes uh, c- comes to pass. Um, it looks, uh, at the time of recording, at least that uh, the opposition couldn't agree on a joint uh, president. Right. But that might change. change uh, and and yeah. if, if that changes, then it could really affect the outcome of the race. Um, probably when it comes to domestic economic policy, not a huge change. Uh, there's certainly a lot on the agenda in terms of the movement towards green energy in Taiwan, uh, those kind of issues. But uh, more broadly, is of course going to be um, more the implications for international politics that that, that would matter. Um, but um, that's certainly something that investors watch from that angle. And then we have, of course, Bangladesh. I don't know if, how closely you look at that, Harold. We look, we, we look at Bangladesh and the Bangladesh equity market. Um, so we'll have to see there's a big runoff as well in the beginning of the year. Uh, and that will also determine kind of fiscal policies and all sorts of other policies that, uh, that, that play a role there. And in Bangladesh, the story is really that FDI is coming out foreign direct investments are coming in but for that they need to invest in power infrastructure and just general hard infrastructure roads and bridges and these sort of things so we need to see that continue to go but um, just taking a a step back Fred here so we we have all these elections across the region Um, how do you generally approached elections is is that something you think it's a risk factor or uh, what are the implications you generally look at 
Well, it's certainly something that investors pay keen attention to. I think in emerging markets, generally, politics matter quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's certainly something we watch and investors frequently ask us about. But I think one interesting observation is that in Asia, politics tends to align less along ideological battlegrounds um, relative to other parts of the world. So an election would not be about do we take you know f free market policies or interventionist policies and sort of these ideological debates are less prevalent in Asia because societies are not really aligned along those. No, those, uh, for example, it's very different in, for example, uh, South America, right? Very much. In fact, we just had the yeah. Argentinian election, exactly. which is about you know fundamental economic policy going forward, macro policy. Whereas yeah. here, it's about uh, you know micro policies. How much incentives do we get F uh, foreign direct investors? How much do we do yeah. in terms of of a healthcare system, healthcare and, system. And so it's the allocation of the resources and there's really uh, even bigger questions that that's right and then it becomes in Asia probably more about the personalities personality of the, the leadership yeah, the yeah. and the ability to to deliver implementation yeah. uh, which is which is much more uh, prevalent and that, that also means that that really in Asia we've seen less erratic uh, macro policies over time we've seen less dramatic uh, changes in fiscal policy over the political cycle than compared to other it, parts. It also means, for example, in the, on the equity side, people very often debate the economic policies that come out of it. But I think more attention in general should be played to what style of leadership these people have. It's the personalities that people pick for, right? So you have, is this an autocratic leader or is it a, a more inclusive leader that says, I, I'd like to have all sorts of specialists in my cabinet that give me expert advice on these issues. And we see in some of these countries very different approaches to uh, to that, and I think more attention should be paid to that than just looking at the economic policy agendas that these uh, these these people have. But at the very least, it's going to keep us on our toes again in 2024, Harold. Yep. I thought 2023 was already a busy year, but it looks like uh, there's no letting up, at least with the elections coming through no, in Asia. No, there's going to be a lot um, of that. Yeah. A lot of that and a lot of movements in markets, and uh, you got to uh, keep on your toes uh, when it comes to, to Asian markets, I think, in general, but of course in a year with the momentous political elections and events, uh, even more so. That's absolutely right. Well, Harold, speaking of elections, um, when is the last time you voted? Um, I've voted uh, here in Hong Kong in the past, but actually I have a Dutch passport. The interesting thing in the Netherlands is that the threshold to set up a party is very low. So prior to the elections, you have all sorts of parties coming up. We have uh, an already successful party for animals for quite some time. I saw there is a party that just advocates more sports for everybody in the country. There's a party for farmers that has been very popular, but seems to diminish in the polls a bit. So all sorts of new parties are coming up there very often. A lot of them, of course, are not big enough to really make it into Parliament, and they uh, they, they are very short-lived. So, how does it work then? If if the if you have elections and then the the party for animal lovers has a majority, and the party for sports uh, has the second largest. Would they form a coalition then? Yeah, and in, then in Holland, none of the parties has a, uh, a majority. So uh, you always need to build uh, coalitions. That's, I guess, the whole idea of having a low threshold so that you don't have one uh, winner-takes-all sort of system. But the bigger issue actually is for me, Fred, is I haven't lived in the Netherlands for thirty over 30 years. I lived there when I was uh, about 20 years old or so. I have a right to vote in that country, carrying its passport, but... 
not being participant in in Netherlands and living here in Hong Kong, I wonder if I, if I actually should vote in in these elections. Is that a country I should contribute to, or should I leave it up to the people that really live there? It's a good question, actually. Uh, in Luxembourg, for example, it's compulsory to vote. Is it? Um, oh, it is know, compulsory okay. yeah. to vote. You get fined if you don't vote, yeah. and. Uh, you know, I've always had sort of uh, question marks around that policy because there should be a, a freedom of choice. But on the other hand, given how world politics where it's gone in recent years, it's perhaps not not a bad thing to encourage people to exercise their civic duties, civic duties and Absolutely. civic rights. Yeah. And on that note, it's goodbye from the two of us. Many thanks, as always, for joining us under the banyan tree. And if you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also sign up for our weekly global economics podcast, The Macro Brief. Thanks again for listening, and take care till next time. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Global Viewpoint. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes.